This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, January the 29th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, there have been some significant developments in the Hockey Canada sexual misconduct scandal. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig will have the latest. New data shows that New Brunswick has the second highest rate of disability in the country. Haley Flero from Ability New Brunswick explores how this data can address policy changes in the province. And it's the 40th anniversary of Apple's Macintosh computer. Stephen Scott reflects on its legacy. You can always count on Stephen to take a big bite out of the apple when given the opportunity. Let's start with the top story of the day. Politicians are back in Ottawa for a new session of Parliament. A federal inquiry into foreign interference begins today. John Kennedy looks ahead. The inquiry says that the initial five days of hearings will help identify ways to make information public, even though much of it comes from classified documents and sources. The discussions on national security and confidentiality of information will help set the stage for the next public hearings, likely to take place at the end of March. The March hearings are intended to delve into the allegations of foreign interference by China, India, Russia, and other nations in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections, with a report on these matters due May 3rd. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. Politics will be the subject of today's daily poll, but before I ask you today's question, let's get to the results and what you had to say from Friday. On Friday, at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, you were asked about pharmacy clinics. Over 100 pharmacy clinics will be providing some primary health services by the end of the year in Alberta. How do you feel about pharmacies being used as health clinics? 75% of you said good and 25% of you said bad. Had a couple responses here. Let's start over on X where James writes in. One issue is limited staff between pharmacy work and vaccination appointments. I saw some people and I was not happy to wait. Over on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc., Pearly Pigtails writes in, mostly yes, but it still leaves us with the problem of not having a primary care provider. They used to be called doctors, but now they come in a variety of packages, which is okay, but it still is a problem to find one to sign on with, and the provincial registries do not help. Tony writes in, good for simple issues. It helps alleviate a lot of stress of our healthcare system. Elaine chimes in, for simple issues, absolutely. Leona writes in, bad. It's hard to go back once something unplanned and negative happens. So far, there are no real solutions for a lack of doctors and other healthcare professionals. Philippe is down with the idea but wants to emphasize accessibility. He writes, I think that it's pretty good because the pharmacies are giving us huge help with our medications. However, the pharmacies should be more aware that accessible products are very important, especially if you do not have access to a family doctor. Really, really thoughtful responses. Thank you for getting engaged on Friday's poll. 
Let's see what you have to say about today's poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Parliament is returning. Politicians return to Ottawa today for Parliament's winter session. What do you believe their top priority should be? Disability issues, healthcare, the economy? I've also included foreign interference because of the inquiry beginning today. Laura Bain, forgive me, I do understand there is intersectionality across all of these subjects, but I really, for fear of being a fearmonger, I know I said fear twice there, but for fear of being accused of fearmongering, knowing the state of the Accessible Canada Act and knowing the state of the, the National Federal Disability Support Program that is being proposed and the looming countdown clock to an election at some point next year, if politicians cannot get their act straight on the Accessible Canada Act and the Federal Disability Benefit, all of this work for the last five to six years, I really feel is going to go up in flames. So I want to see significant progress on those files in the next 12 months. Yeah, Dave, you've really kind of, um, you know, I, I completely echo those sentiments. We're in the same boat there. I would like to see disability issues prioritized, which is not to say the other issues, uh, certainly the first oh, three aren't yeah. important. So, but, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of just made some a little note here on my feelings, trying to work out how I feel about this question you were going to pose this morning. I would say I feel tired, angry, and lied to when it comes to the government's actions on the Canada disability benefit. I believe it was first introduced in June of 2021. I could have that wrong. I'm not a politics reporter, but it I, was I can, introduced I can, and then... I, I can help you. Yes, it was, and then got blown up when they called an election in the fall. Yes, exactly. And so we're looking at like three years now for this, and I think it's important to get the bill right, absolutely. But I think that at this point, we're getting into territory where that's been used as an excuse to drag it on. And it also is not being balanced with the urgent need that is out there. Disability poverty was called an emergency years ago, and then it's just kind of been left to linger. And, you know, I not to go on too much of a rant here, but having watched a lot of the proceedings around this, I listened to Carla Qualtra talk about how much how the relationship she built in the community and leave this as framework legislation because we could trust her and look what happened. She's no longer the minister responsible for the bill. So I just feel like um, if since we've made the decision for it to be framework legislation, fine, keep working on that. But I think something needs to get rolling out in the interim because you mentioned New Brunswick, they're having the second highest rate of disability. They also have the lowest income assistance rates in the country. And I have friends who are trying to scrape by on like $800 a month there people with disabilities so safe safe to say i think <laughs> number one dave number one is my choice yeah, disability yeah. issues I, I know that based on our perspective and the network that we work for certainly disability issues are going to be top of mind for us but it's but it's really important it's not simply cupping our hands uh, cupping our hands to our ear to hear the roar of the crowd it's to legitimately have this conversation and understand the importance of advocacy laura you talked about timelines and betrayal megan gilmore is a reporter for canadian affairs and a regular caller on this show and Megan did some reporting on this in regards to timeline based on current frameworks and process there might not even be 
anything in place until the middle of next year in regard to when maybe some money might hit somebody's pocket. We're talking about June 2025 for legislation that's been worked on since 2021. And again, getting it right is critical and negotiating with the provinces is critical so they don't mess this up. But there's been a lot of heel dragging and waving around of process rather than work. And it's a really, really big deal. And Alex Smythe, it's probably more emblematic of how the disability and accessibility file is treated more broadly. There's been lots of conversation in the last month about where Ontario's at with the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act that is going to miss all of its targets and deadlines and nobody really knows what to do about it. So, Alex, I, I do understand and acknowledge that maybe we're cupping our ears to hear the roar of the crowd, but it's it's something that needs to be hammered. The table needs to be hammered on this stuff. Well, and it's also the, the one file of the choices that you know, there was legitimate fears that if there is a change in uh, leadership in the political party who is governing the country, that all the work, as you had mentioned off the top, just goes away. You know, if uh, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives come into power, there is a very legitimate chance that all the work on that disability legislation does not continue. And I think that's where the biggest, the fear, the concern, the the um, kind of the push to ensure that work is being done in this file. Obviously, we, we have intimate knowledge based on the industry, based on the lived experience, based on covering this issue extensively. Now, normally, if, if all these different files were the same, I would say healthcare. But for me, the bigger issues right now when it comes to healthcare is at the provincial level. We're talking about the federal side of things. I, I think that's where disability issues take the forefront in that regard. The economy, every single party is going to have the economy top of mind. They're going to address it in the way they want to address it. Yeah, for yeah. Thing. You, may, you may disagree or agree with their approach on the economy, but everyone's going yes. to have an economic plan. Yeah, whereas the disability issues, you know, uh, I don't know if that is the case for every single political party that, that would be vying for, for uh, leadership. So that is where the, the concern lies, and that's where that sense of urgency is. We know you, the Liberal Party has done so much work to get it to this point. Just get it across the line. Get it in people's hands and say, even though we know it's going to take over a year, essentially, for money to actually get into people's pockets, get the work done now so that it is in place before an election comes. All right. We have uh, definitely cupped our ears to the crowd, but I think we did that with enough nuance that people understand where we're coming from as three people with disabilities. At Accessible Media is where you can vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you can vote on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545. What do you believe should be the biggest government priority heading into the winter session. Coming up after the break, there have been significant developments in the Hockey Canada sexual misconduct scandal. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig will have the latest. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There have been some major developments in the Hockey Canada sexual assault scandal over the weekend. Michelle McQuig has the latest. Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, this one has been bubbling to the surface for about 10 days now, mm -hmm. but over the weekend, yes. formal charges were filed. What's the latest? That's correct, but it's not done bubbling. I should just say that this is really just the start of the action to come in the next week or so. So what we learned yesterday, we've been hearing word forever that there are charges pending in the the, 20, the alleged 2018 incident that touched off all the Hockey Canada scandals last year. I, we don't have time to recap them all, but the change of leadership at Hockey Canada, the appearances before the committees, the, the rev revocation of funding, all these things had their their origin somewhere in the allegations around the world junior, the junior, sorry, the, yeah, the juniors team from 2018, who members of whom allegedly perpetrated a sexual assault in 2018. What we now know is that there have been charges filed against five people. And one of those people is a player by the name of Alex Formanton. He used to be with the Ottawa Senators, and he turned himself into London police yesterday. Do we know what the charges are? No, we don't. All we know is that there are charges filed and that one player has surrendered and the others are expected to do so in the coming days. But that is pretty much all we know in terms of those developments. Mm. That said, even though it sounds vague, it actually does move the ball forward a lot relative to where we were even just a couple of days ago. Michelle, there's a lot of reckless speculation going on around this story. You nor I will engage in that. But what are the London we police... We sure won't. We sure won't. But what are the London police saying about where the process goes from here? All they are saying is that they're withholding comment on any of the allegations or the charges until they're planning to hold a news conference on February 5th. Now, you have to understand that it's really, really strange to set up a news conference 10 days out. <laughs> So they clearly have a whole plan that they're sticking to it, but that we're going to have to wait for any official word from them until next Monday. So pretty much I, I would say I would speculate this time next week or maybe slightly later, we'll probably finally get some answers, mm. but they're not they're They're really, really staying quiet until yeah, then. This is an example of where uh, journalism uh, beats out everything else. So let's leave it there and let journalists continue to do their work. Michelle, let's switch to something different here. There's been a development on the Housing for International Students front pretty much as the news panel wrapped up our conversation on this issue on Friday. By The, the way, timing was comical, truly. By, by the way, download that episode, search for Now with Dave Brown on your favorite podcast, an announcement uh, that is not in line with something that I was bantying about. Michelle, what is the government asking colleges to do? It's almost like they hired you, Dave, because the government came out and said that what they're planning to do now is mandate that all universities have to provide housing for their international students, which, for those who were listening on Friday, is exactly what Dave said they should do. The catch. <laughs> Dave, Dave Brown Consulting still waiting for the check, by the way. I mean, fair. Uh, I, I would also like to note, though, that... Uh, Perpetual ants at the picnic, Michelle McQuig, did point out that these things are hard to do without money. And lo and behold, that thread came out too on Friday. Uh, this mandate does not come with funding package. There's no money associated with this announcement. And as a result, it's being pretty widely panned by, by the universities themselves and by opposition groups just saying, oh, that's great. We would love to provide more housing. How are we going to pay for that? We need some money and we need some help. You might remember in Ontario that tuitions here have been frozen since 2019 and the province has not boosted funding since then. So that is the big source of the university's uh, pushback on this is they're saying that they simply don't have enough money and haven't for quite some time.
Michelle, I know that there are a lot of uh, contradictory narratives being put out here, but I don't know if the ants at the picnic can scurry a bit deeper for me in regards to the <laughs> scope and scale of this policy. How much burden precisely would it put on institutions? Great question. Um, is there a specific angle you're? you're I'm, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking about uh, how much how much money it's going to cost, where they're going to get space, like construction yeah, timelines. Well, like those are all the big questions, right? Because there is because there's no funding package associated. I don't. We'd be taking individual universities' words for it, not estimates in terms of space. That's always a perennial issue. Like there, there really is nothing in this particular announcement to to sort of pave the way for this to become a concrete policy rather than an abstract one. Um, and well, that's of a course, good pun. That's the, a good pun, by the way. Concrete policy versus abstract. Uh, oh, um, oh, this is my superpower. Accidental puns. <laughs> my best ones are not suitable for the air, but still, um, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, essentially at this point, the, the onus is entirely on the universities to make this happen, and and the immediate messages. No, we're not able to do that. Yeah, there's also timeline questions here that come to mind for me, right? Very much so. Like regardless yep. of space or money or strategy, the fact is you can't wave a magic housing wand. Like, like I wish we could. No. We would be in a much different housing scenario right now if there was such a thing as a magic housing wand, but there isn't. It takes time. Like it, it, can, it can, I mean, listen, it doesn't take a decade to build housing, but certainly it can take a year or two to build anything sure. that's resembling quality. Absolutely. And that's the whole issue, right? It, the quality is is a big piece of it. We're in this this whole conversation about international student education because a lot of the accommodations that have been made so far in terms of private, you know, partnerships with, with private schools and whatnot, and many of the things that have been done have resulted in a lack of quality, lack of quality education, terrible housing scenarios. You hear about students sharing mattresses and terrible rooms, et cetera. It, so some some degree of quality matters. It can't just be housing full stop. There, there needs to be some parameters and criteria in place. And all, all we have with this particular announcement on Friday is a mandate that the universities mm. should provide it. So, And we don't even know when that would go into effect. Right, so at this right. point, it's a pretty loose promise. Even if it's a, uh, in theory, good idea, because it came from Dave Brown Consulting. Uh, okay, Obviously. let's switch to another Ontario story. This one did not come out of the mind of Dave Brown Consulting. A little bit odd, but Dave Brown Consulting kind of approves. The government is going to be moving some Service Ontario locations into retail locations, namely yeah. Staples. I didn't know Staples was still really a thing. Uh, there, was some reporting know, right? <laughs> there was some reporting on this by your colleagues. Well, what's the intention yeah. here? Allison Jones and Liam Casey, my my dear, dear friends and colleagues are working at the at Queen's Park. They're a formidable team and you should follow them if you want to keep up with Ontario politics. This uh, particular announcement is, is interesting. Yes, they're, they're announcing that they're going to be moving a few Service Ontario locations into Staples stores. And this is part of a broader effort to try to they're trying several different ways of expanding Service Ontario. So one thing I didn't actually really know formally until recently is that the government does operate a certain number of Service Ontario locations, I think about 80, and the rest of them are operated through private partnerships. And these are the partnerships they're now trying to explore and possibly expand. So this is where Staples comes in. They're moving those locations in there, and they are looking at other big box stores. And the reasons they're doing this is they're saying it's partially for customer convenience. They're saying the government-run locations are only going to be open Monday to Friday during business hours, but staple stores are open on Saturdays and much much longer. They're often more centrally located. 
that's the kind of model they want to pursue with some of the other retail outlets. They haven't said which ones they're looking at, but they're also just throwing a number of other um, models at the wall to try mm -hmm. and see how else they can expand. And this is where it gets quite interesting because there really clearly is an effort to try and it, it change the customer experience a bit, make the locations more accessible, go, go deeper into remote communities. So there really does seem to be a good faith effort here to, to expand the reach of Service Ontario and make it more accessible to more people. And this is where some of the other pilot projects are coming in. And they already are moving on this. So I, I, I do think the government's pretty serious about this one. I remember... I used to go to the Service Ontario location inside Ottawa City Hall, and it was so darn convenient because that's where a lot of official business was going mm -hmm. on. Michelle, as I draw a thread here or a line that makes this not just an Ontario story, but connects it in different ways that cities and provinces are envisioning access to services or access mm -hmm. or reimagining the public space that we live in. This is obviously not a housing story like the Calgary uh, commercial space into apartment story, but I see mm, the connection. Yes. It's reutilization of existing public spaces where people are. And I think I think that, yes. that is something that really matters in the broader conversation of a reimagining in the way that we operate in this world. Certainly the more stuff that could be moved online, that's fantastic as well. But especially when it comes to government documentation, you just need to think about where people are and where they can get to them. And what do we have that already exists in our society mm -hmm. that should make it a more straightforward line? Not just where people are, but how do people function in their honest to God day-to-day -day lives. And this is where one of the comments from the minister in the story from Allison and Liam is, is a good one in that they're saying people don't do their business by going to some cathedral-like government building between 8.30 and 4.30. They do stuff when they can. They do stuff on Saturdays. This is what we have to acknowledge is that the world is different now and business gets done differently and we need to be there if we want to be part of this mix. So that is also the the, the not so tacit acknowledgement is that they need to be there where people are and where pe and and how they're living their lives and this is part of the whole model. So they're looking at a few other things. Uh, there, there's a, a mobile service Ontario model that they're exploring in our more remote area that seems to sort of hew to this philosophy. They're looking at potentially libraries uh, again with yeah, libraries yeah. back here are our favorite uh, stopping point for these things. Um, other retail locations that well, we don't know which ones yet, but again. The aim seems to be big box stores yep, because they're open yep. longer. Mm -hmm. So they're 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 trying. Some of these projects are already off the ground, and others um, only only the library one I think hasn't had some form of action taken on it already. So we've got four or five different models currently in play, trying to see what's the best one. Pretty good yeah. way to gather information on what works and what doesn't. And as I continue to draw lines here, I think about the way in which services uh, are moving towards pharmacies in Ontario, yeah. Alberta, and Nova Scotia. That was the daily Absolutely. poll question last week and got a lot of response on that one. And I'll tell you, as getting a vaccination right before Christmas, it was very convenient to go to a pharmacy where I was able to get a vaccination, do a Canada Post return, <laughs> and buy some groceries for the rest of the uh, week, right? Like when you can... Exactly, and, and, yeah. And, and also is an accessibility and argument. And the Canada Post partnership is another piece too, right? Yeah. So there's another one that's been enlisted for... And, and, there, and there's an accessibility argument around this as well. As someone who is legally Very blind, so. I don't want to go to four different places to do something. If you can put this under one roof for me, that's a huge advantage. Even if and there's questions. Stuff, even, if, even if there's questions of execution. Like, there, there is merit. 
Absolutely. And the other advantage to standalone stores to put them in is for accessibility reasons. Malls are often not great. If you bury them somewhere in there, that's not going to work for a lot of people. So many potential advantages to this kind of approach. And, and it's interesting to see that they're really trying to just suss out the best options. Uh, this government also has done a lot. It's worth acknowledging to bring services online. A lot of the things we can now do in the province, like renewing our health cards and driver's licenses and the driver's license equivalents for those of us who can't hold driver's license. The Ontario ID card, which uh, photo I, card. Yeah, yeah, I had to live here for a while before I knew about that one, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." It's a thing. Yeah. Well, but we could not renew those things online up until about two, three years ago. But now we can, and the government has been devoting some genuine resources to try and simplifying a lot of those processes and bringing them online. So I, I do think there is a certain level of commitment to to broader accessibility for. Perhaps not in the way that we all discuss it here, but in, in expanding the reach of Service Ontario and making it easier for people to do those crucial things. Michelle, I took you a little over time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Have a great week. Thank you very much. That's Michelle McQuig, Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press and part of the Friday News Panel. Check that out just after a 9 o'clock Eastern time on Friday. Coming up next, advocacy comes in many forms, but it works best when there's power in numbers. Shelley Petit reflects on the importance of evoking change through community advocacy. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. New Brunswick is heading into an election this fall. And that has Shelley Petit thinking about the significance of advocacy and the power of voices. Shelley is the chair of New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Hey, good morning, Shelley. Oh, Shelley, hello. Can you hear me? I got you loud and clear now. Thanks, okay, Shelley. Okay. Fantastic. So why do you think the election represents a moment to consider the collective power of voices? Um, since the I really feel that since the pandemic, um, especially persons with disabilities have really united across the country and have realized the power of their voice. And then with the most recent Stats Canada numbers that have come out uh, in New Brunswick, we've seen our, our numbers jump tremendously. We're now at 35.3% of the population. And if there's ever going to be a time where we can demand, like really demand that we get some of our needs met, because we can't have them all met tomorrow. We know that. Like there's there's got to be some realism here. But have the government really listen and, and take into account what we need? It's now. But the only way that's going to work is if we unite and use our voices as one. So that's a really strong theoretical jumping off points, but there are some yeah. positive examples to point to. Oh, yes. One from a national perspective is uh, Loblaws flip-flopping on their decision yeah. to reduce discounts on uh, soon-to-expire food. How do, you, how do you think that conversation and backlash impacted the way a giant corporation backed down? And believe us, an organization that rarely backs down from policies that really annoy the heck out of people. Yeah, like, uh, look, nobody was more surprised than I was that they did back down because they essentially said, came out and said, nope, we're sticking to this. And 
this is the norm and this is what we're going to do. And we were waiting to see other grocery stores and drop theirs even more. So the fact that so many voices spoke so loudly, united across the country, um, really made a difference. And it shows like nobody can now say my voice does not count or what can I do? I'm only one person. Your call, your letters, your emails, they all count and they can all make a difference. And people have to stop with this. I'm only one person. Yeah, you're one person, but when you're joined with several others, you become really powerful. Mm. There are other concrete examples to pull from the yep. experience of New Brunswickers, uh, community members working to address the issue of homelessness. What was the situation like and what came about through advocacy? Well, uh, somehow the government didn't seem to be ready for the winter. You know, it happens every year in New Brunswick uh, and it happens significantly. So many of our homeless shelters are just opening now. We have tent encampments all throughout the province. Uh, unfortunately, we have many people who are working at low-income positions who are living in tents. Like, this is just not the Canada that I grew up in or the New Brunswick I grew up in. And unfortunately, there was a fire in St. John and a gentleman who was helping to save other homeless individuals perished in the fire. We've now found out another gentleman in, in that same situation uh, is losing or has lost, has had to have part of one of his legs amputated. And the community just came together across the province, uh, very vocal. And the government got on. There's a new homeless hub opening. There's more money going into shelters. Like So still Band-Aid solutions, but they started moving on it a lot quicker than they were planning on it. There are also some cultural issues that are unique to New Brunswick, New Brunswick being the only officially bilingual province in the country. There was some pushback in regards to French immersion and access to French immersion schooling yeah. for students. So what was the outcome? What was the pushback on that front? The premier thought that they would just eliminate French immersion. He has never been a pro-French individual. He originally came from the core party, the old core party that wanted to essentially put all of us French people on a boat and ship us back to Louisiana or something, I think. Um, and they tried to change the French immersion program, eliminate early French immersion. Um, and people just across the province, parents, teachers, uh, teachers who put their jobs at risk fighting this and just stood up and said no. And they were having these community meetings and the fire marshal came and shut many of them down because there were too many people there to protest. And they had to backtrack. They said, absolutely not. We're not changing. They changed the whole policy and we're back to where we were. Let's zoom out again and think about this through yeah. more of a national lens because advocacy and disability have gone hand in hand pretty much since either of those two terms existed yes. at all. But what about allyship? What about trying to get more Canadians into the tent more broadly to understand the importance of disability issues and become strong allies in fighting for those disability issues? Oh, that is huge because a disability issue does not just affect people with disabilities. It affects their families. It affects their friends. And as we continue to say to people, being able-bodied is just a temporary state. At some point, you're going to be, you know, God willing, you're going to age, you're going to have, you know, maybe some mobility issues, some sight issues, hearing issues. And if we all work together to meet the basic needs of persons with disabilities, then everybody's needs in Canada are met. 
And the more we talk about that, or we talk about the need for universal design and housing, and I say to people, stop and picture this. You're in an accident. You're being released from the hospital today, but you have to use a wheelchair for six weeks. Can you even get in your front door? Can you get on and off your toilet? They start to realize the importance of some of these needs and how it is going to impact them. And when we can bring them in, and which is happening more and more, then we see the common will for change expand, and that's what's going to make a difference. Hey, Shelley, thank you for your perspective on this today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. That's Shelley Petit. Shelley is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe's weather story of the day is also in the Atlantic provinces. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index managed to squeeze out a modest gain at the end of the trading week on Friday. Toronto's TSX index closed 23 points higher at 21,125. In New York, the Dow Jones average gained 60 points and the Nasdaq lost 55. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 275 points. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.43 cents U.S. Asian markets have opened the week on a positive note with China Chinese regulators announcing measures to support the country's teetering stock markets, while heavily indebted property developer China Evergrande was ordered to undergo liquidation. This week, we'll see the first meeting of the U.S. Federal Reserve Board this year. Analysts expect the Fed to echo the Bank of Canada's decision on interest rates last week, a continued rate hold, but a shift in messaging towards cuts. Canada will also get fresh GDP data this week. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to the world of weather and Alex Smythe. Alex, a storm is a brewing on the East Coast and it's impacting one of our colleagues, Laura Bain. We'll hear her perspective a little bit later. Yeah, Dave, uh, it is a uh, cold, wintry, snowy day out in Halifax, and that will uh, also move into Newfoundland later today as well. It's the first major snowstorm of the year for the region, so schools are closed today in Halifax. There's heavy snow, heavy wind pummeling the area, so expect delays, cancellations on anything that is planned today, because even at 7 a.m. Atlantic time this morning, there was already a centimeters of snow that had fallen at the Halifax airport. By the time the system moves on late today, you can expect upwards of 15 centimeters of snow. And as I mentioned, as it moves on, it's going to be moving into the Avalon Peninsula of Newfoundland and Labrador. So you're going to start to see the storm come into that region later today into tomorrow. And there's going to be upwards of three centimeters of snow per hour in Newfoundland. So there's also strong winds that are accompanying this storm. So upwards of 70 kilometer per hour wind so that is going to contribute to whiteout conditions low visibility just really tough conditions out and about the reason for this severe storm is because you got a lot of moisture from a low pressure system coming up from the gulf bringing all that moisture in and you have the cold uh, high pressure system from the north so once that cold air meets with all that moisture 
that is resulting in this huge amount of snow in these storming conditions. So hopefully, you know, the system moves by uh, quickly for the Nova Scotia region by the end of today, it should clear up. And then for Newfoundland Labrador, that's going to be tomorrow into Wednesday that it will be clear. But it's the first major snowstorm of the year for the region. All right. Well, in the next segment, uh, both contributors are popping by from the Atlantic provinces, uh, Kim Thistle in Newfoundland and Labrador, and Laura Bain will be joining again from uh, Halifax. So I'll ask them what the uh, circumstances are like on the ground, and I'll find out if Kim has her storm chips ready. Because, you know, you got to be prepared for these things. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, it's a film review. Lift is a new Netflix movie that stars Kevin Hart. Kim Thistle will share her thoughts on that, and you'll get a glimpse into Kim's pantry to find out if there are storm chips available ahead of the snowstorm. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's turn to the world of film. Lyft is a heist film that stars Kevin Hart as a master thief. He teams up with his girlfriend to steal $500 million worth of gold on an airplane. Here's a clip from the trailer of the movie. Entering a condo. Can I get you a drink, Gabby? Agent Gladwell. Am I in trouble? You and your friends are looking at identity fraud. A man uses a special glove to fool a finger scan. Money laundering. $20 million are deposited. And transportation of stolen property. But I'm here to offer you a deal. We need you to steal something. <laughs> in Venice, Italy. Okay, guys, listen up. Our next score is going to be our biggest yet. Nice. A woman uses special sunglasses to locate a boat. Half a billion in gold is on his way to a terrorist cell. A man is tortured. And the gold needs to disappear. What's your plan? We got to steal it mid-flight. 40,000 feet in a year. We're taking the plane, the whole plane? It's kind of hard to take half a plane. From the director of The Fate of the Furious and The Italian Job. It's impossible. It just hasn't been done before. One jet chases another. Someone attaches a device to a safe. If we don't do this, we go to jail. Plus, it's about saving lives. Come on. Entertainment critic Kim Thistle has some thoughts on Lyft. Hey, good morning, Kim. Nice to chat with you today. Hey, good morning. How's everything? Not too bad. Are you ready for the uh, snow to blow into Newfoundland and Labrador? Yeah, we, we always are, aren't we? <laughs> Clinging on to the rock. So, Kim, this is quite clearly a heist movie, which is yeah. a very popular genre. Yeah. How would you describe yeah. the overall quality of the plot? I think you just covered it in that movie, you know, clip that you just put there. You know what? Okay, is it, you know, realistic to think that a airplane can, you know, we can rob an airplane 40,000 feet in the air and we're going to get underneath with another plane and do it? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I haven't, you know, read any recent, you know, CIA reports or whatnot. But it, it, it's a fun, I found it a fun movie. The plot 
you know, it, it flows along. We're in different places throughout the world. We're in Vienna. We're in uh, London. We're in uh, Tuscany and uh, Vienna, um, Venice. And so it's a, it's a movie that moves pretty quick, pretty well overall. And, you know, I thought it was a fun, flowed movie and great cinematography and the background score. Well, you see right there, that, that definitely implies that it's worth a watch. Kevin Hart, big-time star in this world, charisma for days. How do you think yeah. he handled the lead role in the movie? Well, you know what's funny, because I, I was going into, like I said, it was an action comedy. It's rated PG-13, I should add. So, you know, it's a bit of language and some suggestive talk. But overall, pretty good. But I went into it thinking, okay, he's going to be his, I call it manic personality and, you know, super over the top and, you know, waiting for him, you know, making jokes and that type of thing. And a pleasant surprise that, you know, I think as a lead man, he did he did well. You know, he did good. He was, a, he was kind of suave and reflective and serious. And, and what his job is as a... Um, you know, this, he's a master, Cyrus Whittaker is a master, um, I guess he's the one that plans these heights, and that's what I mean. He thinks outside of the box, if there's a problem, he's, well, how about we try to do this? And so, yeah, Trevor Hart was in, you know, reflective, and we didn't have a lot of time to flesh out characters. You have to remember, this is an action movie. Yeah. And I thought he did pretty pretty good, and the cat's team, he put around, like he said, we rescue Eric from undeserving uh, owners. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, he, he, he's a star. Like Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart is a yes. movie star. He might not be for everybody, uh, but charisma for days. What else did you like about the movie? What I liked about the movie was, um, it, well, well, him, a different role for him, as you said, and he is a star. And, and, it, and to see that switch for him to be, because I watched another movie of his after, and here he was, his manic self. And I said, yeah, you know, this man can do it, right? The strong other characters that they had, the female leads, I really liked those. And that included the Interpol agent that was his ex-girlfriend. I um, apologize for the names as I'm trying to pronounce. Guhu Mataba Ra, she was the agent. Ursula Corbet was the driver pilot. And now this is a badass lady. Oh, am I allowed to use that word? I prefer um, you didn't. she is commanding. <laughs> yes, sorry. Sorry, my apologies. Um, like, she's a strong character as in, you know, the driver and the, and the getaway thing. Like, there's nothing that builds on her. Jun Ji Kim is the hacker, Mi Sun. And then they have other, you know, males that, that support the roles. Vincent Diopino, Master of Disguise. Billy Matheson, the safe cracker. Like, the characters together were really a lot of fun. And I, I like them. And it's especially, like I said, the strong women characters doing things like they they weren't there just to arm candy where did the movie fall short in your opinion mm. i you know I, I think i have to get out of my head that part you know because i you have to come for me you have to come to this movie as i'm coming to be entertained i'm not coming to find out can they really put an airplane underneath another airplane and rob 500 million dollars in gold bullion without anybody knowing <laughs> <laughs> Can that really be done? So, and and the fact that it takes eight days to get this ready, like during the time crunch, and I'm thinking, holy moly, you know, that type of thing you got to suspend, suspend this fleet, just get into the movie and enjoy. 
Kim, you talked about the number of locations in this film. Of course, the action sequences themselves. That puts a lot of right. onus on the audio describers to keep you connected to the plot line. How was the audio right. description? Oh, spot on. And I'll just give an example. Like they say, in Northern Ireland, a man walking a savage dog walks into a stone barn. So there, you know, savage dogs. Like they tell you everything. And, and the fighting scenes, it was like, it banged up, down, like they, they didn't describe, and there were quite a few fighting scenes, right? And it was well described. And, they, and then they would say, like, an iconic seascape of um, Italy, St. Mark's Square, those like, things. So, yeah, I thought it was well done with the audio description. So, Kim, do you recommend Lyft? Yes, I do, and even my son watched it, and he said it was a pretty good movie. And, you know, that, that's what I want right now. That's what I, you know? Let me be entertained. Entertain me. <laughs> Kim, I said the exact same thing on Friday. I went to go see Mean Girls last week just because I needed some okay. content that was, like, light and fun and musical. Yeah. And it just scratched the itch, right? Like, like sometimes exactly. you just need to scratch that itch. I, there's enough misery in the world that I don't need to make entertainment contact, uh, content to make me even more exactly. miserable. Exactly. Exactly, and that's what this movie, I, I believe, delivers. And if you like Kevin Hart, give it a chance and see the uh, another side of him. Like that. Hey, Kim, uh, best of luck preparing for the storm. I hope there's lots of storm chips available to you. <laughs> Thank you so much, but don't you curse us now, making it worse. <laughs> well, uh, I'll do my best. That's Kim Thistle, a film reviewer in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, with a review of Lyft. You can find that on Netflix. It is rated PG-13. In one minute, the entertainment conversation continues. But first, HP is trying something new with keyboards. Sherry Preston taps up another edition of Tech Trends. From ABC News, Tech Trends, a new wave at your fingertips. Think about using your computer, and there isn't much that you use more than your keyboard. And now HP is trying something new to make all of your typing a little easier on your hands and wrists. Our first ergonomic keyboard. HP's Nancy Blaker says this keyboard goes back to the wave design of splitting the keyboard into two blocks. 25 degree of a difference here between the split zone one and two. Meaning your hands and arms can be in a much more natural position. It tilts down about seven degrees. It has three stands and that's all for stability and support. And includes 20 programmable keys. As much as we're working hours and hours in front of our screens and our PCs, our customers have told us they're, they're looking to be more comfortable uh, without compromises. The HP 960 wireless keyboard also comes with a detachable number pad. and promises up to two years of battery life. It'll be available this spring for $120. With Tech Trends, I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Thank you very much, Sherry. Let's turn to the world of entertainment with Laura Bain. Laura, just before you share some updates uh, from the weekend, a uh, sort of grab bag of entertainment stories, I neglected off the top of the show to talk about the storm that's hitting the Halifax region this morning. How are you holding up out there? Well, so far we're connected, so I'm good. Uh, I do tend to be in an area that seems to lose power quite a bit, but uh, pretty much all schools are cancelled across the province, including uh, my university, not that I had classes today, so it's a little bit of a snow globe out there, right. hopefully. Uh, snow day. I mean, not, not, like, not like too bad, but, you know, bad enough that I'm happy to be home inside. Snow day in the HRM. Do you have storm chips, or is storm chips strictly a Newfoundland and Labrador thing? Storm chips are big here. 
today I don't. I've been sort of trying to eat healthier, so I don't have any storm chips today. I've also been, I've also been trying to eat healthier, but there's a couple bags of sour cream and onion that are just sitting in my pantry, staring at me. But I've been able to fight them Ooh. off, but it's hard. That's my favorite flavor too, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll ship those out your way and get them out of my kitchen. Uh, Laura, let's uh, get it back into the world of entertainment here. You got a, you got sort of a grab bag here of a few different things coming down the pipeline. Yeah, that's right. A few sort of little stories out from over the weekend. First of all, uh, X has temporarily blocked all searches for Taylor Swift. And I tried it. I tried to search Taylor Swift on X this morning. Could not do it. Came up with an error message. And this is due to AI-generated explicit images of her that have been circulating on the platform for the last few days, some of them going viral and getting like millions of shares. Uh, fans fought back. This is kind of a nice side of the story. Flooding X with real images of Taylor Swift with the hashtag protect Taylor Swift. Uh, I've got another story involving devoted fans. Mm -hmm. This one makes me laugh. Uh, so Justin Timberlake released Selfish, which is his first new single in six years wow. last week. Wow. Uh, last week, and some folks may have had a chance to catch him perform it on SNL this weekend. Uh, but here's the thing: Britney also has a song called Selfish. It's off of her 2011 album. It's just a bonus track. It never charted before. Uh, and over the weekend, Britney fans trolled Justin by downloading and streaming her song on mass, bringing it onto a lot of different charts alongside or ahead of JT's new single. <laughs> yeah, I like that. A little, a little bit petty, but but it is it is in the era of streaming a little bit easier to uh, to get a little bit of a movement going to say, hey, let's let's give our let's give our girl a little bit of a bump here too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and now finally, uh, lastly, it's been announced that Joni Mitchell will perform at this year's Grammys, and this is her first ever Grammy performance. Uh, and she currently also has an album nominated in the Best Folk Album category, so not too bad for age 80. That, that's, inc that, that's incredible. The, the Grammys are tonight, correct? I think they're tonight. Oh, are they? Yes. Yeah, I, you know what? I have to, have to verify that, but I I think they, yep, they they might be. I, I thought I saw an ad during the football yesterday that said the Grammys are going to be tonight, and they made reference to Taylor Swift because she was there. She was at the, uh, the Baltimore Ravens-Kansas City Chiefs game and said that uh, she is, I think she's competing for a record for album of the year Grammys, which is super cool considering that she's still in her early 30s. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've got all my award shows written out, but I did <laughs> haven't checked it today. So uh, uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you to the control room Sunday, February the 4th. So the non-football Sunday, CBS has to fill their uh, programming somehow. So February 4th are the Grammys. Right. Yes, that sounds right. So well, folks can go. check that out next weekend. Um, so I have to ask, I know there was some uh, sports in there, I'm assuming, but what <laughs> kept you entertained this weekend, Dave? Uh, Laura, yes, there were some sports involved here, but I actually went to go see some live music uh, in the Beaches neighborhood in Toronto on a Friday night. Uh, and this was delightful as I continue my quest to becoming an older and older gentleman. It was uh, just a three-piece band, nothing fancy, guitar, bass, drums. Uh, 
uh, playing a bunch of music from the 60s and 70s, and it started at 5.30 p.m., and they were done playing by 8.30 p.m. Laura, give me more shows at bars that start at 5.30. It works much better with my sleep schedule. But yeah, the, the music was great. It was like the Beatles and Rolling Stones, Marvin Gaye, like all that good stuff, and these musicians were just tremendous. That sounds great, and I would definitely check out more shows if that was kind of the the, t- the time frame. I could still make it for my 10 p.m. bedtime. <laughs> uh, no cover charge either. You just just roll. You just rolled in, and they passed they they passed the hat around between sets to say, hey, if you want to throw a couple bucks in here, please do. I ended up throwing a 20 in there. I was happy to happy to support local musicians. And when I took a gander at that pitcher on my way out the door. I saw a lot of $20 bills in there. I even saw a $100 bill in there. So these guys had not a bad night. Oh, very nice. Now, I didn't make it out to any shows this weekend. Uh, not so much for going out in the dark and the cold, but I did burn through uh, all of the most recent season of Love on the Spectrum, which just came out last week. And uh, I don't know. Are you a fan of that show? I have not watched it yet. What did you think? Oh, well, it's great. And I think it's an example of how dating shows can be kind of done in a uh, tasteful and character-driven rather than drama-driven way. Uh, But uh, it was a nice surprise that this season and and perhaps previous seasons that I haven't noticed, but it was uh, expertly narrated audio description by AMI's own Amy Amanti. Oh, look at this. A star is born with Amy Amanti. That's, you see, that's a reason to tune in just in and of itself. That's super cool. Yeah, it definitely was. I caught it at the end of the first episode, and I was like, wait, did I hear that right? <laughs> That's fantastic. Next time Amy pops by, got to a picker brain about that one. Hey, Laura, thank you for this. I have fun not watching the Grammys tonight, because turns out it's not tonight, and talk to you tomorrow morning. I was thinking I dropped the ball there, but it's <laughs> next weekend. I still have time to get on that ball. All right, no, you have a, have a good one, Dave. No, just Dave Brown paying attention to the wrong things during football games. <laughs> That's Laura Bain at the entertainment desk coming up after the break. A couple of those football games will be reacted to. I've also got some audio to play from the state funeral that was held for former NDP leader Ed Broadbent. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and on AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, January the 29th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, new data shows New Brunswick has the second highest rate of disability in the country. Haley Flero from Ability New Brunswick explores how this can better address policy change in the province. And it's the 40th anniversary of Apple's Macintosh computer. Stephen Scott reflects on its legacy. But let's begin the hour with a little bit of more somber news. Mourners paid tribute to former NDP leader Ed Broadbent in Ottawa yesterday as part of a state funeral. Here is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's reflection. He spent his whole life fighting for people, for fighting for justice, fighting for that fair world. He never forgot who we fight for. He made it very clear 
job of government, the job of elected people, is to fight for the vulnerable, not to protect the powerful. Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe remembers his conversations with Broadbent. What I remember most is the smile that I could hear in Ed's voice through the phone, clear as day. Ed wasn't just about achieving good things. He was about pursuing them with a good nature. This was his politics of joy. Canoe says Broadbent's legacy runs deep. In this, as in all things, Ed was a relentless force for good in our beloved Canada. He embodied this in the political victories that he helped to secure for Indigenous rights and environmental justice, for gender equity and an undying passion for the blue collar. Broadbent passed away on January the 11th at the age of 87 years old. Wanted to play some of that audio with you. I thought it was uh, quite compelling and it really reminds you about politicians and passion and being forces for good. Let's talk about sports with Brock Richardson. Lots of football to keep you busy yesterday. The San Francisco 49ers tamed the Detroit Lions in the NFC Championship game. The Lions blew a 17-point second-half lead. Lions quarterback Jared Goff was in disbelief after the game. I struggle finding the words to totally encapsulate how or why, but... Um... I do know I'm proud of this team and proud of these guys and proud to be a part of it. And um, no quarter half play defines any of us. And unfortunately, um, they were better than us today. The Lions are the only team to have played in every season of the Super Bowl era and never reach the title game. Elsewhere, the Kansas City Chiefs grounded the Baltimore Ravens 17-10 in the AFC Championship game. The Ravens made a myriad of self-inflicted errors. Baltimore quarterback Lamar Jackson says mistakes were the difference. No turnovers. You know, they, they played the game basically perfect. Uh, they put points on the board. Um, I felt like if we wouldn't turn the ball over, we definitely would have had a shot. We definitely would have came out with a win. But they did a great job not turning the ball over and putting points on the board. Brock, that's the theme from yesterday in terms of the reaction. Both losing teams very much lost the game. It wasn't that their opponents were so much better than them. They just kept making mistakes. So it begs a question this morning in talking about the losers. Which of the losing teams feels worse as a team, as in the players and coaching staff? Which of the losing teams' fan bases feel worse? Because there is a distinction there between the fans and the team. So, which of the losing teams feels worse, Brock? It's got to be Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. I mean, you had two red zone situations where you turned the ball over. And if you scored on either one of those, the game is completely different, in my opinion. And you, you look at that and you swing the momentum. So for me, that's the team that I would suggest is uh, the most upset because of everything we talked about with, with Baltimore and where they could have been and 
probably should have been in this situation. And now we have to start over again next season with Baltimore and what is Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. So that's my answer for that. Yeah, it's a it's a core reminder of a team not playing to their identity. They were one of the best rushing football teams in the league this year and only ran the ball three times in the second half of the game when the score was still close enough that they could have run the ball. That's a situation where you go home and you have to be beating yourself up for not playing to your strengths. So, Brock, that easily leads to uh, your answer on the other question, which of the losing fan bases feels worse? The fan bases, for me, it's got to be the Detroit Lions. You were almost there you blew a a 17 point lead you were almost there you almost made it to the super bowl for the first time in team's history and then just to have it just crumble in front of you to me that's the fan base this morning that's feeling like they got punched between the eyes and going what happened here i we should have been here and i agree they should have been there but they weren't yeah even though baltimore was in the game for most of it It never felt like they were going to win the game. Detroit had it on a silver platter going into halftime with the 17-point lead. Brock, I wouldn't be surprised if Lions fans were already booking plane tickets and booking hotel rooms to Las Vegas in two weeks, right? You assume that you're going to win that game, even if you've had a tortured history as a fan base. People were locking down stuff on Expedia and Hotels.com. They had aspirations. They had plans. Oh, Dave, uh, full disclosure, I was sitting with uh, Josh Watson, one of my colleagues for the neutral zone, as I was at his house yesterday, and I turned to him when they were up 17 points, and I said, man, if the Lions win this game, I'm coming on here tomorrow morning telling you, Dave, I don't know, the Lions are going to win the Super Bowl. I mean, that that's just where we were, and I just really believed, and as the time went on in the second half, it was literally the tale of two tapes, and then... You know, they didn't win, and here we sit. And it's just, it's it's surprising even to the non-fan of the Detroit Lions. It's like, I really thought we were going to be talking about a different result today. I really did. Self-inflicted, though. A lot of really aggressive coaching decisions when perhaps aggressive coaching decisions were not what they should have been making. But that's been their identity all year, going forward on fourth down, skipping field goals, two-point conversions instead of extra points. So, again, it's the idea of at least they go out on their shield in the way they've gone out all year. But, oof, that is a frustrating one for the Detroit Lions, no doubt about it. Okay, Brock, what's your way-too-early pick for the Super Bowl? There's two weeks to dissect this and figure it out, but the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers in a rematch of the 2020 Super Bowl. What's your way-too-early pick? I can't go against the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, they are just a playoff team. They just know exactly how to play these games. They know exactly how to shut it down in, in, in the last moments. I cannot go against... Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, they are just too good. And to me, they're going to win the Super Bowl. It's going to be close. I really believe it. But to me, early take on Monday as we're just under two weeks out from 
this this game, I, I would go with the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, it's two weeks in a row that the San Francisco 49ers have not played a complete game. And that's uh, that's that's something that at least should raise a couple of alarm bells here going into that game. I would tell you, I would argue the 49ers on paper have a better defense than the Chiefs, but the Chiefs' defense, this whole playoffs, have been amazing. So when you say... The Kansas City Chiefs have the best quarterback in the world who is very quickly making his case as the best quarterback of all time, and your defense is good enough going against a San Francisco team that is woefully inconsistent on offense. It just feels, Brock, like the the center of the universe drifts towards the Kansas City Chiefs on this one. Even if San Francisco's roster might be better from player 52 to 50, uh, from player two to player 53 on the active roster, it just feels like Patrick Mahomes is just such a shifter in terms of what you're actually playing for and how you're playing. And that Kansas City defense has been the best defense in the playoffs from the first weekend through to this weekend, and that has to count for something. And even even when Kansas City's defense breaks down just a little bit, you also have the Patrick Mahomes X factor that he can make something out of nothing. How many times yesterday did we think, oh, he's going to get sacked or he's going to throw the ball away, and he doesn't. He makes something out of nothing. And even when he has to throw the ball away, he knows not to put his team in danger. So when you have all that going for you, your defense doesn't, doesn't give up a lot. And even when they do, you got Patrick Mahomes that can come and bail you out every once in a while. You have a really, really big recipe for success. And I really, truly believe they're winning another Super yeah, Bowl yeah. Uh, yet again. His I really believe. Third in six years. It's incredible. It's incredible. Hey, Brock, yeah. thank you for this, buddy. Have a great day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson coming up after the break. It's the 40th anniversary of Apple's Macintosh computer. Stephen Scott will reflect on its legacy. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's the 40th anniversary of Apple's Macintosh computer. 1984, the first Apple Mac dropped. It had a 72 screen pixels per inch. As of now, you're looking at 250 screen pixels per inch in the uh, new models. Stephen Scott has memories of the Apple Mac. Good and bad. That seems reasonable. Stephen hosts Double Tap on AMI-audio, which you can find daily at noon Eastern time. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Nice to chat with you. Hey, good morning, Dave. This is the best topic in the world for us to geek out on for me. Never mind your sport. Keep your sports. This is what you want to talk about. 40th anniversary of Max. Where do we begin? Can we just do the whole show on this? Can we just scrap the rundown? You know, we I, I would not necessarily all the way object, Stephen, because much like yourself, I've got a lot of history and experience with Max as well. You know, I was, I was born in 83, so in a lot of my elementary schools and high schools, Macintosh computers were the were the commonality. So I've been I've been rocking with Max uh, pretty much since I've been like touch, touching computers. What was your first experience with the Apple Max? 
Well, exactly the same as you, Dave, because, of course, as you say, education was a key area for Apple in the early days, especially. And, you know, it was a great way for them to get these Macs into kids' lives, into schools, and for all, all of us to get used to them. Of course, it wasn't universal. A lot of schools had PCs as well. We had PCs, but we always used our Apple Macs more, and we had more of them, hence why we used them. And my first memory of going right back to, you know, my very first, and Mark Aflalo on Access Tech Live always jokes about this. He's like, you're so specific about this particular laptop, but it was a Mac PowerBook. Back in the days, they weren't called MacBooks, they were called PowerBooks, uh, and that was the first laptop I ever used, and it was the PowerBook 190, which was a, a clamshell design, very similar to what you'd expect today, but it had, and it was one of the ones with the first color screen, which was a big deal in those days. Color. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I did have the 145, which didn't have a color screen. It was a grayscale screen. It even had, wait for this, a trackpad that had a ball in it. So it had a trackball, not a trackpad. Uh, and we were talking on Double Tap the other day about how it's always important to keep them clean. And you had to learn how to get your nail, you had to grow your nails a certain length just to <laughs> dig into this little hole to get all the hairs out of it so you could keep it clean. Otherwise, the ball would never move. Uh, it was an absolute nightmare, something the kids of today just do not understand. What did you like about these early iterations, though? Because clearly you were you were a devotee pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think it's because it was new, it was exciting, it was different, it was cool. Um, you know, it was cool because, you know, these computers early on could do things that Windows computers couldn't do. And, you know, you might remember over the years, there were advertising campaigns for Apple that kind of had, you know, Apple as the cool guy and the Windows guy was the guy in the beige suit with the tie going to work in the 905, doing spreadsheets. Uh, there was a great ad, I remember, where they had a, a guy who... You know, he's leaping out of his box. He was, he was, he was Mac, right? So he was jumping out of his box. And he's like, "Hey, I'm going to make some videos. I'm going to do some pictures, and I'm going to, you know, whatever it was." And the PC guy, he's trying to plug himself into all these different things, and, <laughs> you know, plug in the mouse and the box. And he's like, and the Mac guy just says to him, "Well, it looks like you've got a lot of stuff to do before you do any stuff. I'll just get on." And I loved that because that was the Mac. You know, they sold the iMac, especially when it got to the little colorful iMacs that we had with all the different colors—the blue, the beige, the yellows. All those lovely colors that came through, maybe not the beige one, but, you know, the fact was that you got all these great, you know, designs and it was cool. You could plug it into the wall, you could plug it in to the internet and you could just go. And that was the thing. It just yeah, made it cool yeah. and it made it easy to use and understand. That That is the the Mac that I think about the most, the late 90s iMacs that were just bubble-shaped. They were, they were big and bulky because everything was <laughs> at the time, mm -hmm. but it was just that big bubble shape. And like you said, one wire that ran out of it that you plugged into the wall, there was a room to jack in your internet, and maybe you were going to connect a keyboard. And that was it, man. Like, that was it. Like, you were often rolling out of the box. My high school that I attended had one room for the Mac computers and had one room for the PC computers. And to my school's credit, St. <laughs> George's Academy, like a school that changed my life, they made sure that we developed competencies on both. Yeah, and that was a smart move because, of course, as you moved into the workplace later in life, you would be using PCs more than Macs. And that became very apparent to me later in life. I remember the first time my first job and I sat down in front of this PC and I'm thinking, how do I use this? This is horrible. Uh, I can't figure this out. Uh, you know, and I felt like I needed to wear a suit and tie in order to, to use it. Um, I, I'm going to say that a lot because I like to annoy the PC. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, you know, you mentioned those little bubble Macs and, you know, there was an advert that was on at the time 
And it was Jeff Goldblum. I always remember this. Jeff Goldblum did the ad for it. And it was him saying, there are three steps to set up a new iMac. Uh, step one, take it out of the box. Step two, plug in your power and Ethernet. And that's it. There's no step three. There's no step three. And he just laughs, you know, and it was just, it was this, the simplicity of it. And I think that was the joy of it. I think that was the thing that made it interesting. And, you know, it was interesting because Johnny, Johnny Ive, who developed it and actually created it and designed it, he put a handle on it. And when asked why, why do you put a handle on it? He said, because I want people to feel like they can touch it. I want people to feel like they can get up close mm, mm. and they can touch and physically feel part of the device. It becomes part of them. Now, we all know that's marketing nonsense, but the point is, it's true. You do feel that you're connected with it in a different way to, at the time, a PC for sure. Stephen, there was a time where whether it was a PC or a Mac, the accessibility experience was essentially zero, right? From my perspective yeah. as someone who was legally blind, my face was right on the screen to read these little teensy tiny fonts. But right around 2005, that's when there was a little bit of that Cambrian explosion of accessibility across the Mac platform. What was the accessibility experience before and after for you? So up until 2005, there wasn't much. And I always remember when macOS 8 came along, there was a, a little third-party application uh, which was developed because, and not getting too geeky about it, but the guys who were behind the development of the drivers, the, the, the software that drove all the software on the Mac, uh, developed this thing called a Macintalk driver. Now, in and of itself, it just meant that the audio, or the computer had audio, right? But what it enabled developers to do was create a screen reader for the Mac because they had access to audio. So what that meant was they developed this application called Outspoken. And Outspoken was the first ever screen reader to appear on a Mac. And it was there up until Mac OS X when the project was retired because at that point, when Mac OS X came out, they developed what was called VoiceOver. And then they developed a service called Universal Access as well. And that didn't just work for people who were blind. That worked for lots of different people, hearing issues, motor issues. It was the beginning of what we see today. Uh, and in 2005, it depends on your viewpoint. Younger people might say that was only yesterday. It feels to me like it was fairly only yesterday, I guess. Um, but it actually was a few years ago, right? But not as long as you might think yeah, yeah. it was. I think a lot of people think, oh, accessibility must have been in the Mac since the 90s, but it wasn't. It was only there from about 2002, 2003, and then officially in 2005. Stephen, even to this day, for all the progress that PCs and Windows have made in regards to accessibility, in terms of an accessibility setup on any device that I've ever had, nothing has been easier than my 2007 iMac. That you pull it out of the box, you hit like three buttons, and anything you wanted font-wise uh, font was just boom done for you, complete. Whereas you have to do a lot of individual customization from program to program. And I think that was one of the things that really put Apple ahead of the game and continues to keep them a bit ahead of the game is because they always made the accessibility a little more simple than the Microsoft side. Yeah, totally. And I'm going to, I'm going to uh, surprise you, Dave, because here on Now with Dave Brown, live on AMI-TV, don't be nervous, um, I've got that 2007 iMac in my hand. <gasps> oh, my gosh. There it is. There it is. Is that, is that my computer? That is Did you break into my apartment and steal my old computer? <laughs> yes. I stole your computer. It's very heavy. Hang on. I break an arm here. <laughs> yeah. um, it is incredibly heavy. But that was the original, or one of the original iMacs, uh, which had that very flat 
I say flat, I mean, compared to today's iMacs, quite different. But, you know, it had that flat screen. It had the CD drive still in it. The reason I have it is because I want to start ripping some CDs. <laughs> <I> thought, <laughs> what better than using this because it's got the built-in CD drive? But that was, the, I mean, that was so cool at the time. And, you know, that's 2007. And even then, you know, even now, I suppose, the design is so classic that you think, wow, this is incredible. You know, even today, it still stands out. People still comment on it. And it's, it's how old is that, right? It's compared to today's machines. Yeah, seven, 17 years ago. Again. 17 years ago. And like, works like, fine. Yeah, yeah like, that's it. My, mine, mine eventually died, but it took about 10 years for it to eventually go down. And then I didn't do anything to try and fix it up. I'm sure if I'd brought it to a Mac repair shop, it probably could have uh, been drawn out a little bit longer. So, Stephen, if I read between the lines there, would you say that's your favorite generation of the iMac? It is. I think it is because, you know, there was a time where there were issues, right? Because, of course, when you look back and compare it to today, you do see the holes. And part of that was that, you know, for a long period of time, Apple used Intel processors. And what that meant was you got a lot of heat on a computer. So a MacBook would be roasting hot. The iMac would run hot as well. You wouldn't get the blazing fast speeds of a solid state drive till much later on a Mac because they didn't have that. So you were running those uh, spinning drives, which were often quite slow. So you had Intel processors, slower drives. So newer Macs, obviously the, the new ones with the, the Silic Apple Silicon processors, the M1, the M2, the M3, these are really fast with those hard drives. You really notice the difference. I mean, anyone upgrading from one of those old machines to one of the newer ones today really notice the difference. But that doesn't go away from the fact that I think, if I'm honest, the design of these machines, these old classic, you know, metal, you know, really hard-wearing systems, you know, you cannot get away with the fact the screen was excellent on them, probably the best screen I'd ever used, and, and I had better vision then, and on top of that, you get this incredible design that is, is pretty timeless, I think, pretty timeless classic mm. design, and I would never get rid of this. Stephen, one more question on the way out the door here. Nothing to do with Mac at all. What else do you and Sean have lined up for today's edition of Double Tap on AMI-audio? Uh, so Sean and I were out at the weekend, so we're going to tell you a little bit about that. Um, it was chaos, as you can imagine. Um, so we're having some fun talking about that. We're going to get into some other Apple news because there's talk of uh, them, uh, apparently, they'll be launching a new version of Siri this year on iOS 18. And oh. if the rumors are true... It is going to be filled to the brim with AI intelligence. So we shall see if that's true or not. Um, and also, I've bought something new, which is a specialist piece of technology, uh, which people might be surprised to learn I've bought. It's not that I'm most expensive, but I am very excited about it. I'll tell you all on air today. I love it every time there's a feature about what Steven spent his hard-earned money on. Because because we, I know that you don't like spending the money, but I also know you like mm. new things. So I always mm. enjoy the impromptu review. <laughs> very, I always impromptu you with me. There's absolutely <laughs> no work goes into it at all, I promise. <laughs> Steven, thanks for this, brother. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one. That's Stephen Scott, one of the co-hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show noon Eastern on AMI-audio, and you can follow the Double Tap team on X at Double Tap On Air at Double Tap On Air. Coming up after the break, unsolved mysteries come to the round table. Alex Smythe has some questions for myself, Nizreen, and Ramya. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The roundtable is standing by, and Alex Smythe, you want to try to bring some unsolved mysteries to the table today. Yeah, what's better to start your week than just diving into <laughs> old mysteries that have yet to be solved and just uh, kind of ponder what could be. And this is all starting, Dave, because there is a renewed sense of optimism around the decades-long search for answers around the aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart. And Alison Kosick has the details. Tony Romeo, head of the exploration company Deep Sea Vision, recently searched across 5,200 square miles of the Pacific Ocean floor using an unmanned submersible. In the final leg of the expedition, the team captured a sonar image of what looks like an object shaped like an airplane resting underwater within 100 miles of Howland Island, near where Earhart was believed to have gone down after refueling in Papua New Guinea. Romeo says he wasn't surprised to find the aircraft intact, saying... We always felt that Earhart would have made every attempt to land the aircraft gently on the water. And so the disappearance took place in 1937, and yet the search continues to this day. The fact that this is kind of the first breakthrough in a while around this case, it, it got me thinking, and I wanted to bring this kind of broad question to the roundtable. It's, why are unsolved mysteries like this one so intriguing? Ramia, I'll, I'll start with you. Oh, I mean for the most obvious reason that it's still unsolved. It's real life, of course. And then we obsess over... I had a, a similar theory about... um, Or not theory, but question about uh, conspiracy theories last night. You know, why do we take certain things so far and go on for so long and create, you know, full-fledged um, stories and communities and all of these things around this? And it's because, like, we just... I think it's very unsettling. You know, it's a real-life cliffhanger, and, and mm. that's why we we take mm -hmm. it so far. And especially when, you know, with this one, for example, with Amelia Earhart, we're really talking about uh, technology. We're talking about, you know, how much do we know already about these circumstances, right, about uh, planes flying and about the geography of our world and all these things, and then she just gone. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting. Information at its core is power. There's power in information, and humans as creatures do not like being left in information vacuums. We're always mm. trying to explain the world around us, and when there's something unexplainable without information attached to it, perpetually humans will be trying to find those answers, hence why unsolved mysteries continue to intrigue people. Nazreen, I heard you affirming to something that uh, mm -hmm. Ramya said. Oh, I agree. I feel like we are built, as humans, we are built to need to know everything. And for unsolved cases, unsolved mysteries, or whatever it may be, if we don't have the answers, we'll create the stories ourselves. I agree. We have so many conspiracy theories. We're like, okay, you know what? This makes sense if this and this happens, if this is how it happened. And as Remya said, she said it perfectly, it's a cliffhanger in real life. And I don't know about you guys, but yes, I obsess over it. If I if I don't have an answer for something, I will try to find my own answer <laughs> and my own story creatively. Alex, what's your theory? You posed the question, but what's your theory? Yeah, I, I think if I wonder if there's something to the idea that, you know, in inside all of us, we want to try to discover something new. We want to like learn something that maybe has been unlearned or or undiscovered in the past. So there's there's always that like mentality of 
may I, can I be the first to really get to the bottom of this? Not so much as the knowledge understanding overall, but like being a part of like, oh, someone to uncover something for the very first time. You, you always mm. hear these grandiose stories and these tales and legends, and you're just like, you want to be a part of that as well. So whether it's solving the unsolvable case, like how many times is that in popular culture that people always want to be a part of that? Even like the unsolvable math problem from like Goodwill Hunting. It's, it's, it's that kind of innate interest and desire to to have something an experience that really is new or different or unique i, I think that probably pay, uh, plays into it beyond just the wanting to understand things around us completely so alex beyond amelia Earhart, which unsolved mystery are you most interested in there's so many great ones out there. Like D.B. Cooper is, is such a fascinating case of this mystery man who robbed an airplane and, and hopped out of it in a parachute. But I think for me, it always goes back to this childlike wonder of pirate treasure. It seems so so, <laughs> so strange, but I, I'm always fascinated by pirate treasure, where it's hidden, you know, why can't we find it? Like there's these maps and all this, like Blackbeard's treasure, um, my favorite pirate, Black Sam Bellamy, we found his, his ship crash, but we haven't quite discovered where all his treasure is. And he was the wealthiest pirate in the history of piracy. And it's just like things like that, where it's like, there's so much still gold and mystery and treasures out there right. that we can't find it. Like that fascinates me beyond anything. Yeah, there's always an opportunity to go search for booty. Uh, Ramya, what do you, which, which unsolved mystery do you find you're most interested in? Um, I don't know. I don't really have something specific that I, you know, follow around. I think it's more entertaining to listen to other people's uh, curiosities around unsolved mysteries. And the reason why is there are certain things that I think like, um, you know, like Bigfoot or whatever, which is just, it's, it's literally only out there for fun. And that's just my opinion. I don't want to start careful, a war on careful. this. Okay, please. I'm sorry if I offended anybody, but you know, the response fun, is, she says, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but see that alone will get people all peeved off. And that is what's entertaining to me. It, I think that sometimes we hold on to mysteries because of the fun of it. And it's just, um, you know, whether or not you really deeply think that these things <laughs> got to be solved, quote unquote, uh, it, it's still fun to kind of catch up. Yetis and Sasquatches wandering around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Nazreen, which unsolved mystery most fascinates you? At the top of my head, I can't think of a real life uh, unsolved mystery, but it really does influence my taste in TV shows. Um, whether it's a uh, criminal minds or supernatural. So from ghost stories to um, unsolved murders. And I think that's what really influences my taste in documentaries and TV shows in general. So let's say you had to be an explorer. One of your obsessions really clicks with you. Are you doing the oceans? Are you doing the jungles? Are you heading out to space? I'm going to say space because the ocean just scares me. Um, I've watched documentaries on the ocean and it just it's terrifying and it's insane that there's so many different types of things living in there and we haven't even found uh, uh, a half percentage of the ocean. So um, I'm going to say space. It's really interesting. Space scares me too. Ramya, I'm curious if I can just stay in North York, Ontario and try to do some exploring, yeah. but I don't think there's not much I can find. Like deep lake diving or something. Like I really don't have the confidence. Deep lake, yeah, Lake, lake Simcoe. I'll go explore <laughs> yeah. Lake Simcoe for pirate booty. Exactly. No, but I'm, I'm way more interested in our oceans, Dave. I think it's incredible that we have no idea what goes on under there. Well, 
Some. We have we have a vague Some. idea. We have a vague yeah. idea of what's going yeah. on down there. Uh, Alex, uh, knowing that I would like to punt on all three of these options, uh, <laughs> jungles, forests, uh, ocean, space. Yeah, uh, you know, Dave, for me, I think I would go space for a couple of reasons. There's always, uh, there was a classic joke on Futurama that it's like, oh, oh uh, uh, they were in the spaceship going down beneath the ocean. It's like, oh, what, uh, like, how far down are we? Oh, we're like 20 atmospheres worth of uh, pressure on this ship. Well, how much can this ship take? Well, it's a spaceship. So theoretically between zero and one. So <laughs> just even on the weight factor alone, I like to be in the idea of being in space in the vacuum. You only have to deal with potentially one atmosphere of pressure, whereas like trying to go down to the bottom of the ocean, it's just all those things that can go wrong with that. I, I would like to take my chances in space. And plus, I think there's more to explore out in space. It's so vast, it's so underexplored, it's so limited in our knowledge of space that there's more opportunity to learn something new. I know there's a Sasquatch sighting society based in Missoula, Montana, which I hear is a really fun city to hang out in. So I think if I know that I'm in a van, but I'll be back in my hotel room by the end of the night, like, let's go in a comfy van, drive out to like the woods in Montana, look for a Sasquatch, drive back, go back to my hotel. That sounds like uh, the kind of adventure that, that I could go with. Is that like your 100% effort, Dave? Are you really trying to solve a mystery out here? Or? I'm like not really. I'm just going on vacation in Missoula, Montana. <laughs> yeah, you know, Missoula, Montana has uh, has you know policies on the books that would make yeah. it a fun place to visit. You, you in Missoula, Montana, you can bet on sports in sports bars. The government has installed betting screens oh. where you can just like sit at the sports bar and like wager on the game you're watching and then get paid out in real time. Like, come on now, like this is my kind my kind of country. If that's the kind of stuff you can do, sure you can single sport wager and on. Ontario, uh, sometimes via great, uh, uh, you, know, you know, I'm not going to plug anybody just in case our advertising uh, landscape has changed on this network. I'm going to plug no one. I'm going to plug no one. But yeah, right in the bar. I like that. Alex, thank you for this. Nizreen, thank you for this. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what do y'all have coming up on Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Okay, so we're um, on our tech talk with Michael Babcock. We're talking about Copilot Pro on Windows. This is a feature that Mike's very uh, keen about. And so Jeff Bishop is going to come back on the show to talk about his thoughts on Copilot and specifically in applications on uh, Windows Office or sorry, cool. Microsoft Office. Cool. Yeah. Also, Noah Mendelson, Aviv, Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian uh, Civil Liberties Association, is joining us uh, to talk about the recent decision by the federal court declaring that the 2022 use of the Emergencies Act breached a lot of rights of Canadians. So we're going to talk about the CCLE's perspectives on all this. And we're also going to talk about the all-access comedy special on AMI-tv that's coming up very soon and uh, feature a whole bunch of information around that. Oh, right on. Sounds like a uh, sounds like a fun show there. I like that one. Yeah, the Microsoft Copilot thing is interesting because it really only hit computers mid to late last year. And I know yeah. there was quite a bit of conversation amongst people in the blind and low vision community that this tool might be extremely useful, but it was still such in its infancy that it was hard to tell whether or not the practical effect would meet the theoretical promise. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's how it's all that's why it's always interesting getting Michael and guests on that way because um he tests often and in on various levels and comparison of different tools that do similar things or at least promise similar theories. So I'm really curious about it. He definitely has brought it up before. Yeah, that's usually the uh the big pitch that's being made here when it comes to technology and accessibility. Even if it's not explicitly about accessibility, the word seamless gets used frequently. Uh that mm -hmm. certainly came up around that rabbit device that made some waves at CES. Yeah, yeah, you just tell it what you want it to do and it understands you and it'll do it. And you know, again, on paper, okay, I, I see the appeal, sure. but but I need, I need results before I'm gonna endorse yeah. and sign off on these things. Yeah, we are not early adopters, are we? Like, I really just wait around to make sure that all the tech guys agree, and then I'm like, all right, I'll <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> well, I think that came up last week in a conversation about up updating uh, our hardware for our phones yep. and our software for our phones. Yeah, yeah, let yeah. me let me be, you know, not the latest adopter, not no. an outright Luddite, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be patient here and take my time. Uh, Ramya, I, I was eavesdropping because there's no door in my studio, so I hear all conversations that go down the hallway were you at, uh -huh. uh, you going up for some chain restaurant dinners over the weekend or what? What's going I on here? I went to Red Lobster yesterday. This is like an annual tradition my friends and I have. Um, and, but I didn't grow up going to Red Lobster, so it's always kind of a new-ish experience. And uh, last night I really enjoyed myself. I had a dry martini for the first time. Whoa, this was, um, whoa. I know, I know. It's a bougie endeavor, let me tell you. Wow, gr like, look, look at growth. Look at growth all around. <laughs> did, did you have some of their cheesy biscuits, their famous cheesy biscuits? Of course, of course. And uh, probably a few to go as well. Oh, I mean, you, got, you, got to, you got to get a little doggy bag going. You got a dog, for goodness sakes. Uh, Rumya. You doesn't get any of the biscuits. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Rumya, <laughs> Rumya, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. You too. That is Ramya Amuthan. Don't forget, you can catch Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can also download their podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And while you're over there, don't forget to uh, subscri subscribe, like, and review our podcast. Just punch in now with Dave Brown on your favorite podcasting platform. That way, that way if you miss anything at all, you can always catch up with it on demand. Coming up after the break, new data shows New Brunswick has the second highest rate of disability in the country. Haley Flaro from Ability New Brunswick explores how the data can address policy. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Statistics Canada has released some data related to disability. New Brunswick has seen an 8.6% increase in disability rates between 2017 and 2022. The province has the second highest rate of disability in the country, with approximately 35.3% of the provincial population identifying as having a disability. Haley Flaro is the executive director of Ability New Brunswick and can offer a little bit of analysis on the raw data. Hey, Haley, thank you so much for making time to be on the show today. I'm grateful. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot to unpack here with this data. The national average did see an increase, 4.7%. But what's your reaction when you see that New Brunswick had an 8.6% increase? 
Well, Ability New Brunswick certainly wasn't a surprise, just given the um, increase in referrals that we've seen over the last several years. So this really validated it. Um, however, we're really concerned about the implications it has for health, social and economic policy. I, I want to get into the implications in a moment, but just a little more context on the front end. Why do you believe the province has seen an increase in people identifying as having a disability? Well, Stats Canada will slowly start to release more detailed information on the provinces, but nationally there was, you know, uh, there is discussion that uh, in the in the data that's been released about increased diagnosis of mental health disabilities, uh, increased diagnosis of pain disabilities. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I know um, definitely that would represent what we're seeing in New Brunswick. So on we know about 30% of those with a mobility disability that we work with are also presenting with some type of mental health diagnosis, anxiety, depression and others. Mm. So there's there's opportunity that there has been improvements in some improvements in access to mental health. So we're probably seeing some earlier and better diagnoses, but we also know that there's a significant pre, uh, you know, pre prevalence of mental health disabilities and um, among our population as well. Living with a disability is, is a tough ad adjustment. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, and I think it speaks more broadly to a better cultural understanding around more invisible disabilities, right? That for so long, disability was perceived in a very concrete static box, and that has changed. And I'd say the other side of it, too, and I, I believe you referenced this in your first answer, just the reality of aging populations. Absolutely, and that is one of the factors. Um, Atlantic Canada, New Brunswick, we have the oldest population in Canada, and with age does come disability. You know, 40% of New Brunswick seniors have a have a disability, and, and the most prevalent disability among that population at 64% is mobility, the, the sandbox that I'm in every day. So, you know, that that is a, a fact, you know, that is a consideration as well. The pain diagnoses did not surprise me. We have the increase in those identifying it as disabilities that are pain related. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing in New Brunswick is we have three-year wait lists for our pain management clinics. So people are leaving jobs, leaving schools, dealing with significant pain, not getting the care they need and it's resulting in more extreme levels of pain and it becoming a full complex disability so that's one of my major concerns because there's some prevention there that's mm. possible okay that's the context and Haley thank you for walking through some of the context before we jump into a few more of the implications <laughs> here now that you have the some of the data on hand and knowing that more of it is going to be crunched moving forward how is that going to help address policy? How should that help address policy? Well, we haven't had a really good policy lens, except for, you know, us nonprofit organizations generally, but haven't had a strong enough policy lens on disability in New Brunswick. And I really hope uh, that they're, you know, the policymakers, when this came across the desk, and we certainly made sure it, it's getting there, um, that there was, you know, that there was a pause to say, how are we ensuring that our policy work for programs, services, economic policy, health policy, how are we ensure, ensuring that this data is being considered. You know, we saw the largest increase in Canada of any province in disability rates, and that has significant implications for, for policy and, and program service delivery moving forward.
Where do you think the priority areas may lay? I, I know that's a really unfair question because disability is so intersectional that it it's is. going that it's going to touch many, many different places. Housing, the economy, social services, support, yes. healthcare. I'm, I, I'm running them off here and I'm only scratching the surface. Agreed. But, but, but where do you think the priority should be considering the influx in data? Well, I certainly think access to mental health services is a priority uh, in New Brunswick. We certainly are experiencing a mental health crisis. I think access to, I know access to specialists like pain, man, pain management specialists needs to be a significant priority because we're seeing people progress to a disability stage of pain disabilities as a result of lack of access to care. Housing, I agree. Um, access to home support services is a significant issue in this province. You can make um, a better wage and benefits working in fast food industry and home support needs to be a, a valued profession to help people remain as independent as possible at home mm, so there, mm. there's significant implications disability service delivery living wages you know um, I'm sure your listeners are really waiting on this Canada disability benefit because my view is that we waited so long to try and get living wage for all Canadians in poverty that this is a way to test living wage with people with a disability. We know that living wage works. Look what happened with the CERB. People mm. are actually able to, to live, pay their rent and uh, pay their groceries during the pandemic. Those that were on low incomes or lost jobs. So um, I, I think that that needs to be a significant focus as well. People with a disability and single parents are the two most impoverished populations in our province. Doesn't mean everyone with a disability is in poverty, in poverty but we know living with a disability adds up. Yeah. You know, extra costs for transportation, home support, over-the-counter medications. Some of those bills are are extreme and not covered under other programs. So um, there's a lot of things we're going to have to keep an eye on all of the different, you know, policy buckets relating to disability. But, you know, living wage, home support, uh, housing, uh, access to specialists are all on our radar right now. Yeah, especially for individuals who may be going through the process of acquiring a disability. It, 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 for someone like myself who was born with one, it's a little bit different because you're adapting from day one, you're learning, and there are certain things in the system that are there for you. But especially for someone who might be acquiring a disability or developing a disability later in life, there's a lot of support structure that's required. Like you said, specialists, rehabilitation specialists, orientation and mobility specialists. These are all yeah. critical, critical roles that are already in short supply. In short supply and during the pandemic, many were out of reach. So we're just starting to see the impact that the out of reach caused on people's health and mobility now because of, you know, a return to accessing health surfaces trying on a regular basis and the wait lists are just get, getting longer. We're mm. really just starting in Canada to see the impact of the pandemic um, on health and rehabilitation services among our population now. Haley, let's take a couple minutes here on the way out the door to talk about the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Let, let, let's stop talking about the uh, cruddy things out there and focus on the positives. <laughs> the good because, stuff. Well, no, because Ability New Brunswick does a ton of great work for people in the province that has trickle-down effects all over the country. So what are some of the services that you want to, uh, that you want to sort of make mention of this morning to help connect members of the community? 
I, I, there's so many services that we're offering now and just so incredibly proud of this team and, uh, you know, just how they, they never, they, they never give up and it's always, you know, nothing without us, uh, you know, designing programs with the population we work with at the kitchen table. I think a two, a couple that I want to mention is our peer support program for people with a mobility disability. We have some great online peer uh, mentorship uh, seminars coming up on pain management, on coping with grief adjusting to disabilities. So I really want to plug that program because it took us a long time to get funding to have, you know, staff to be able to formally coordinate that. And the response has been amazing. You know, people reaching out for mentorship, whether it's on a certain topic like accessible travel or adjusting to a new MS diagnosis. So I really want to plug that program, especially. Um, in New Brunswick, I want to, you know, really plug the policy work we're doing on behalf of people with a mobility disability. We've been heavily involved in the Canada Disability Benefit federally, and we're really hoping that that will roll out in the next year and provinces won't be clawing back the benefit and mm, making mm. people ineligible for other programs like housing or, or you know, equipment. Uh, you know, one of the things I keep bringing up with the Canada Disability Benefit, sure, if, if there's an income of $24,000 a year is a minimum living wage, but if they, we take away health care benefits to cover a $30,000 power chair, no one is going to be any farther ahead. Mm -hmm. So um, there's some serious things to think about there. But we're also working on, and I'll come back and talk to you about this, the uh, New Brunswick is drafting its accessibility legislation. We're one of the last provinces, so there's a little bit of a negative spin. But we're also we're also able to learn from all our provinces, all the provinces and the colleagues. And we've been talking to them a lot about what they would have done differently to give their legislation more teeth. So we're drafting ours in partnership with government right now and we're really excited about that and we're really excited that we'll be the first province to actually have a component on adapted sport and recreation in our legislation so stay tuned i cannot wait to have you come back and tell me more about that Haley. thank you for this please keep up all the excellent work and i hope the uh, snowstorm that passed with east coast wasn't too rough on you New Brunswick got off easy, but don't tell anyone. Oh, yeah, I was okay. really, I was kind of hoping for a snow day, but I still would have talked to you. Uh, it's well, always a good day in New Brunswick, Dave. Uh, you've told me that before. I always appreciate I that one. <laughs> Thanks, Haley. Have a lovely day. Okay. Take care, Dave. Okay, that, that's bye. Haley Flaro, Executive Director of Ability New Brunswick. A lot of policy and priority conversation there. Don't forget, that's the topic of the daily poll today at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Paul returning to Ottawa today for Parliament's winter session. What do you believe their top priority should be? Disability issues, healthcare, the economy, or foreign interference? You're also welcome to uh, go off the board and tell me, Dave, these options are bad because they're all intersectional. I acknowledge and agree with you. <laughs> at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on X, feedback at ami.ca is the email address. 1-866-509-4545 is the phone number. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, 
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.